0: Lord Jesus, certainly easier for me at least to sing that than to live it. So help us, Lord, to hear your word, do what you ask, know that you always know what is best, and you are always good. Every part of your character, every part of your plan and purpose is for your glory and our good. So help us to trust that, and we invite, and I invite you to rearrange my thinking and my behavior, my goals, as I listen to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. How is everybody? Certainly you're not hot in here. I've been thankful for a man whose last name is Carrier. Are you familiar? He invented air conditioning, one of God's great gifts, right up there with antibiotics and brisket. It's (laughs) just… And if you don't know the importance of brisket, you probably haven't been to Texas in the right spot. (laughs) Welcome. My name is Bruce Garner, and probably some of you could use a moment just to breathe and, and relax. I was over at the Welcome Center helping a few families find their way, and I had forgotten how sometimes just getting in the room is a monumental task, especially for young families. You know what I'm talking about? Thank you for being here. We're glad that you came. We're in the Gospel of Luke, listening to Jesus try to straighten his team out. In Luke chapter 9, there are four stories told in rapid fire by Luke, who's a historian. Luke was not one of Jesus' original disciples. He was a close friend of the Apostle Paul and a co-worker along with Paul years later. But Luke didn't have the privilege of being an eyewitness of the things he writes about. Rather, he's a historian, and you can think of him as an investigative journalist who goes behind the story and talks to the people who were there, and by the time we come to this point in Luke's gospel, which we've slowly been moving through, Jesus is determined to go to the cross. And in spite of all the time and all the love He's poured into His disciples, they still don't get it. Has it happened to you? Because Jesus is a real person, He's God, who became flesh to save me and you from our sins, I know that we have a personal relationship. And that means Jesus has a mind, will, and plans of His own that occasionally clash with mine. I don't know if that happens to you as well. So you hear Jesus say things in the Gospels like this, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Everybody comes to Jesus with their own agenda and the disciples have heard for twice now in very clear, pointed language that Jesus is not only going to die in Jerusalem, he is determined to die in Jerusalem. In other words, it's not casual, it's not happenstance, he's certainly not going to be a victim. He will be treated terribly. To look at the cross, you would think he is being victimized, but being a victim means that some terrible thing is forced upon you. Jesus goes into Jerusalem knowing full well what's about to happen to him. He may be the first and only condemned man to actually inis- take the initiative and walk toward his executioners the night he's arrested. It's that important. He's that clear. He's that serious. And the disciples, sadly, don't get it. And if you make this story about long ago and far away, you may miss what Jesus has to say to you. Because of all the things that Jesus said and did, these were selected by God, breathed out by God, the Bible explains of His Word, to make disciples now. Because Jesus really is a person, and He is still calling people to follow Him. He Himself knows what I've told you time and time again, but He knows it far better than I do, that He is the only possible person in the world who can save you. He is utterly unique in human history. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He is the greatest miracle of all. He is God become flesh, tempted as we are, in our exact human likeness, a real man who is still eternally God, who lives life in our place as our substitute and our example, and dies to trade lives with us. All of that is straight ahead in Jerusalem, and the disciples bless their hearts. That's a southern expression that means, well, it's not a compliment. If anybody ever says bless your heart, you've blown it. Look in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, and you'll see what I mean. And look how inappropriate this is. Verse 44 says, let these words sink into your ears, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's a short, punchy way of saying the one that God promised, the actual Messiah, that's what Son of Man means, it's a messianic title, is about to be delivered into the hands of wicked people. Well, that should have brought them up short, that should have made them reflective, that should have made them grateful, that should have moved them to amazement, it moved them instead to something very different. And this is the first of four ways that Luke tells us, and that's why he has these rapid fire stories, of how you can be a defective disciple of Jesus. You're meant to be an effective disciple of Jesus, but you can very easily become defective instead, as I have been many times, by... Engaging in the kind of thinking and arguing that they do. Verse 44 the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Immediately following, Luke says this An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Does that seem out of place to you? It is. It's terribly out of place. I'm headed into Jerusalem to die. Hey, I wonder how we rape." That's the private conversation that they're having. We don't understand it. We don't even agree with it as you'll see, as you'll eventually see through the Gospels. But if the boss is telling us he's going to die, I wonder how we're doing amongst ourselves. And if you think That spirit has changed at all in the heart of the everyday disciple. Well, you haven't met anybody honest or been honest with yourself. It never stops. This comparing, this competing, this outdoing the other guy never stops. Years ago, I was in one of these social settings that pastors find themselves in where I hardly know anybody, but I sat down next to a really interesting guy, and because he looked interesting, I immediately wanted to know what he did. And he said, I'm an artist. And I said, well, that must be really fulfilling. He said, it is. There's only a few great artists in the world, and we all know each other. (laughs) I'm not making that up. I went to laugh, too, looked again. He was dead serious, so I pulled back and said, well... That must be very satisfying. He said, I assure you that it is. And we had the most wonderful dinner. It was great. (laughs) But that spirit never stops. Jesus is going to die. The disciples are arguing among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, see what made that story surprising and funny is a lot of people feel that way. Hardly anybody says it out loud. They're not arguing in front of Jesus. Jesus knows what's going on as God. He knows what's happening, and here's his response. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him, he's talking about God, who sent me. And here's the lesson. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You like that? Think about it. Grapple with it a little bit. Do you like that? Do you want to be treated as the least of all? Here's a measure of servanthood. One of the buzzwords, even in the secular world, is servant leadership. And the boss is the one who serves. The real measure of that is not whether you say it, but how you feel about it when someone treats you like a servant. I've met precious few bosses who can tolerate being treated like a servant. They bow up rather quickly. Let's be honest. Oftentimes, we bow up rather quickly. And in some subtle way, without saying there's only a few great bosses and we all know each other, Remind the other person that this is not actually my job. Let me get somebody to help you. Years ago when I went to seminary, they had a seminary orientation day, and I went with a friend, and he lost his keys. He didn't realize that because he had two sets of keys until he got all the way home about 9.30 at night, so he drove back in desperation to Biola hoping that somebody would be able to help him. He met a tall guy who was wandering the campus. He said, I'm sorry, I'm Ray. Ray. I was here earlier, I lost my keys. Where do you think you left them? He said, I have no idea. They took us all over the university. Do you have keys to the place? Yeah, I do. Would you mind helping me? Not at all. They looked for about half an hour. They found them tucked in the Bible rack in Calvary Chapel. That's the chapel at the seminary. So my friend, gratefully, is going to run home with his keys, and he says to the man... By the way, I'm so sorry, thank you so much, I never introduced myself. My name's Ray, and the man said, nice to meet you, Ray, my name's Clyde Cook. You Biolans will know who Clyde Cook is, he's the president of Biola University. It never came up. He wasn't going to mention it. Ray only discovered it when he thought, just as a matter of politeness, to introduce himself right before he went home. That's servant leadership. Now. Is it appropriate for a university president in that situation to say, let me get somebody who can help you? Of course. Why didn't Dr. Cook think to do that? Because he wasn't thinking of himself. That night, he was available. He took the time, and he wasn't even going to mention it. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying something like that, even more radical, because he says... In verse 49, whoever receives this child, the one standing next to me, in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Why did he bring a child close? Because in Jewish culture, and the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded it, a child was a person of no importance. You became important when you got older, when you could contribute, when we were sure you're going to live and be healthy and productive. Then you start to matter. Children have a much higher and exalted position in our culture than they did in the day of Jesus. But what Jesus did to his squabbling, arguing disciples is to put a person of no importance to them at all, that no one took any thought of, that no one wanted to please because the child couldn't do anything in return, and say, This is who matters. When you treat them well, when you treat them with love, it's as if you treat me and honor me with love. And when you honor and love me, you're actually honoring the Father who sent me. It's radical. So how do you become a defective disciple? Here's mistake number one that Luke would have us to see. First of all, in your discipleship to Jesus, make it all about you. That's all you have to do. And here's a surefire question. Whenever you're conflicted, whenever you start to get upset, whenever you start to make decisions where people are going to call upon your time, ask yourself, Am I thinking about Jesus or others or am I thinking about me? And know about your heart what Jesus knows about your heart and make it about the love of the Lord and the love of others first. But Luke's not done teaching these stories. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, just stop right there. Does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing to you? Good guy or bad guy? Good guy. He's doing what Jesus and the disciples had been doing. He is casting out demons. Is he an outsider? Whose name is he working in? He's working in the name of Jesus. This is another disciple. This is another Christian. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. What's my number one Bible reading tip if you've been coming here for a while? Slow down. Think about what they just said. We met someone who is casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop it. I wonder how the demon-possessed person felt about that. You think their family was pleased? We tried to stop him. Why would they try to stop him? Keep reading. Did I lose you? Verse 49. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. What does that mean? He's not one of the twelve. He's not one of the Green Berets. He's not in our circle. Not one of the cool kids and John is telling this to Jesus, what do you think John expects? He's volunteering this. He's taking the initiative to tell Jesus what he's done. What do you think John expects? Well, if you're putting someone in charge of you, and you're there, you're, you've elected them as boss, and you tell your boss something, what do you, are you normally expecting? The boss, I really blew it last night. To be honest with you, I haven't been working but about four of the eight hours you pay me. You ever volunteer things like that? Not unless God's really working in your heart and making you be real for once, right? I think he expects a commendation. We're the ones who really get it. We're really with you. Jesus said. Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is what? well, that's kind of rearranging a concept. If He's not against you, He's actually with you. And He'll say it the other way around too. What is Jesus trying to correct here? A second defect among disciples. Very common everywhere in the world, and we've made it a specialty here in the United States. If you want to be a defective Disciple, a defective follower of Jesus, a defective Christian, act like you're the only one who's doing it right. All these others, they're not serious. If they were serious, they would be where? With us right here. The cool kids, the ones who really get it. Now, what's that about? That's probably more about branding than anything else. That's about market share. That's about identity and trying to hold on to your group. This is challenging to me because in this and several other places of Scripture, I find that God is more open-minded than I am, sometimes about who is actually following Him. What do I mean by that? Paul writes from Philippians in prison, and he says, I know that there are others outside this prison trying to add to the suffering I'm already in, by preaching the gospel out of selfish motives. Hear that for a second. They're preaching Christ, Paul says, to make me feel worse. Well, how would that work? A little bit like this. Paul, if you were really pleasing to the Lord, maybe you wouldn't be in prison. We're not. We love Jesus and we follow Jesus. We're preaching Jesus. Nobody's arresting and beating us. You're probably doing it wrong. And what does Paul say about that? He says this, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let that sink in just a second. Whether in pretense or in truth, in other words, whether their motives are good or bad, they are proclaiming Christ. That's radical. Have you ever questioned a pastor or a fellow Christian's motives? You should. But listen to Paul and listen to Jesus. If it is Christ that is being proclaimed, if it is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, according to these scriptures, to save you from your sin, if it's really Christ that is being preached, Paul actually radically says, I don't even care about the motives. I'm not pleased, but I rejoice that at least Christ is being proclaimed. You have any room for that? It's challenging because what Christians love to do, and this story is right next to the first one, I believe, because of this. it comes from the same bad thinking and bad heart. We're important, we're ranking ourselves among each other, and also we're not only tough on each other, we're tough on outsiders too. And pretty soon you whittle down the family of God to about three people who think just like you and project a judgmental, condemning attitude on everyone else, even those who were actually proclaiming Christ. And Jesus would say, if they're working in my name, do not stop them. They're with us. It's hard, especially for pastors. because Boy, do we like to slice the pie. So, you know, these guys, I don't know. You know they have a lot of blue Bibles in their church, right? Yeah. <laughs> concerned about a blue Bible. I'm just just—I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm concerned about where it might lead. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Watch for that. This Savior came to live among us some 2,000 years ago. If the Christians you're listening to tell you they're the only ones who understand and love Him, Check it. That seems very unlikely. Jesus is determined to go to the cross to die for the likes of these people and for the likes of us. And there's more. Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, I mean, his death is that imminent. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. What a phrase! He's determined. He's turned the corner. Nothing will distract him. Nothing will discourage him. He is headed straight to death. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. He's moving across Israel, and he is going to go into a place that makes a proper Jew's skin crawl in the first century. He's going to go through the territory of the Samaritans. It'll probably take several days. And there is such radical hatred between these two The Jews consider their Samaritan cousins half-pagan sellouts. And the Samaritans and the Jews are arguing about important things like, where do we worship? And in this matter of drawing near to God, which one of us is right? And now Jesus is going to go straight through Samaria, and because it takes multiple days, He's going to need a place to stay. But the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is taking a side. He's going to Jerusalem. He is contrary to the Samaritans' ideas and beliefs, which were mistaken, and not according to the Scriptures, about where God could be met. And the Samaritans say can't stay here. They're the mean girls of this day. Can't sit with us. And it's much more important than that. It's deep. It's heavy. There's rivalry. There's actual hatred, which is why Jesus will soon tell the story of the good, what? Good Samaritan and turn their world upside down. Because in a proper observant Jew's understanding, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Jesus is going to need lodging. It is being refused. And here come the boys again. John and now his James with him. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You reading this with me? What in the world's going on? What are they saying in plain language? You want us to kill them? Now, again, are they expecting praise? Yes. The prophet Elijah has done something like this. They know they are so close to the one that they make a fatal mistake. And I know it's fatal because it says in verse 55 that he turned and rebuked them. Man, it's hard to be a disciple of Jesus sometimes. You're trying to improve your position. You're trying to tell yourself and others that you're the only one who gets it and that you're really on Him, and if anybody hates Him, you hate them too. And in fact, you're willing to stand in God's place and call judgment and death down upon them. And Jesus says... None of that. He rebukes them. He chews them out in our language, and they went on to another village. What is this about? Here's a third way to be a defective disciple. Take it upon yourself to condemn people who need him. That's all you have to do. Now, there are there people who have nothing but contempt for Jesus in the world now. Let's be real. Are there people outside these walls who have contempt for your Savior? How does it make you feel? At a certain point, a reasonable response is anger, right? Impatience, frustration. Well, what do you want to do about it? See, this is 2,000 years old, but as timely as breaking news. Because this is still the disciples' struggle. The disciples and Jesus themselves know that there is no one, perhaps, in their society any farther from Jesus than the Samaritans. As the book of Acts unfolds, that's part two, that's Luke's sequel to his gospel, we're going to discover that the Romans and the Gentiles are willing to come to Jesus in great numbers. The Samaritans are especially resistant. They're wrong on the Scriptures. There is ethnic animosity and hatred as well. There is mistreatment on both sides for a long time. One of my Hebrew professors claimed that a Samaritan tradition was this. If any Samaritan saves a Jewish life, that Samaritan should be killed by his fellow Samaritans. Well, that puts a whole other twist on the story of the good Samaritan, doesn't it? That man's risking his life to save the man. So they think they're in good company and in good standing by saying, How dare they? Jesus, they won't even offer you a meal. Step back, we'll deal with this. You ever want to step in for Jesus and just hasten judgment day? Now you can't, what do you do instead? You withdraw love, you break off communication you go deeper into your tribe, and you build bigger and bigger walls to show them and tell them in all kinds of language and symbols and a frostiness in the reception you give them that if you don't love Jesus, you're not welcome here. A church service at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning with the effort that many of you made just to get here is an unlikely place to find someone who doesn't love Jesus, but let me say, if you're not sure that Jesus even exists, you certainly don't love Him. Welcome. He loves you. So do we. We're exceedingly glad that you are here. What is it that Christians so often expect of other people? They expect them to behave like Christians, and not only Christians, but the kind of Christian that they are. Where did we ever get that idea that that could even possibly happen? What is our part? Our part is to tell them the good news. What if they don't like it? That's still our job. Good news is to be told, it's to be shared. Someone with good news to share in his joy and in his love of the good news and love for the other person, shares that good news in the hopes that it will be received with love and joy. And if it is not, it is still good news and it is still good, it is still true. And your part is done as a messenger if you share the good news and you continue extending love to people who want nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus. And this is as timely as Twitter because this is exactly the edge that our country is on as believers, whether we will show any love, kindness, graciousness, understanding, and listening to people who want nothing to do with us and nothing to do with Jesus. Let's be clear. We may not be worth their time, but He certainly is. They just don't know how good he is. They don't know the depth of the love of this Savior who is on his way to Jerusalem to die for Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. And in the sequel, in the book of Acts, you're going to see a powerful movement of God, and Samaritans in great numbers are going to come to Christ, and it's going to be so shocking to the disciples, they're actually going to send a little delegation down to check it out because they cannot believe that it's true. So whoever the Samaritans are to you today, if you find yourself in the strange position of turning to Jesus saying, step back, I'll take care of this, I know what to do. Go back and check your responsibility to the Lord and to them because it is not our place to condemn people who need Him so badly. Final story. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now we're talking. If you were Jesus, what you what would you have said? Please don't read ahead. Just live in the story for a second. What would you have said to Jesus in this scenario? It's quite an offer. I will follow you wherever you go. Where's Jesus going, by the way? He's going to the cross. This man may or may not know that, but he's made an unconditional promise. Wherever you go, I'll be there with you. What do you expect Jesus to say? Good. Awesome. <laughs> Amen. Let's go. Been looking for men like you. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Literally. Literally. He's been turned back in Samaria. He has no place to stay. He's momentarily homeless. Why did Jesus say this? Because Jesus is not at all like you and I sometimes think. Remember, this is a Savior who says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and then follow me. Jesus is continually telling people who are going to follow him and promise that they will to count the cost to see if they're serious. He has no desire to sell a bill of goods, to sell something, to present something easy that is later discovered to be very difficult. What is Jesus trying to do? He is trying to save people and make them into his wholehearted followers. That's the purpose of this church. Together we are, independence upon God, trying to make wholehearted disciples. We're trying to be those kind of people and we're trying to make those kinds of people because that's what Jesus told us to do, to make disciples of, shocking, all nations. Every ethnic group, every kind of story, every kind of sin, every kind of awfulness in the world from all of these nations, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, the noble and the commendable and the reprehensible and awful among all of those groups, they are all invited to be His disciples, but not on their terms, on His. So Jesus says to the first man, consider what that might cost you financially. If you're really going with me, understand that I don't even have a place to stay tonight. Well, if I slow down and read the Scriptures and make them turn back on me, because that's how good Bible reading works, first, you understand what it means in the first century or whenever you're reading, you understand what Jesus meant to tell those people, and then you step forward into your life. And here's what that sounds like in the 21st century. If it sincerely cost you everything you have financially to follow Jesus, would you still do it? That's what Jesus is putting in front of this man. And there's another person that wants to talk to him. To another he said, follow me. Now Jesus is taking the initiative. He's actually calling someone. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Does that sound reasonable to you? reasonable and deeply important to the Jews. In their tradition and their culture, the sacred and most binding obligation above everything else, above whi- beside which everything else was excused was a son or daughter's responsibility, a son's responsibility to give burial to his parents. It was big. Now, this man may have been saying, wait until my parents die, give me my inheritance, and then it'll be easier. That may have been what he meant, but Luke doesn't go into that detail. He just makes a simple, reasonable to him, him, sacred request. He says, let me first go and bury my father. It's a hard verse. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wow. There's a reason sometimes pastors are choosy in what they teach. That's a tough one. What's Jesus saying? Let spiritually dead people take care of their own concerns. That's an earthly concern, it matters but you have something far more important to do, you, Jesus says, are to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, in comparison to the knowledge of Christ and the wonderful obligation, joy, and privilege of telling people that the Son of God has come in fulfillment of the Scriptures to die for sin. And to make people who are estranged from God and facing His judgment into His beloved sons and daughters, nothing else on earth matters more than that. No other obligations matter more than that. And that's hard. And I hear the silence and love it and I hope that it means you're considering it. Because this happens over and over in the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 6, He thinned the crowd with another hard saying. And John says, from that moment forward, many of His disciples no longer walked with Him. And then Jesus turns to the twelve and says, are you leaving too? And can you imagine going to a church like that? People are leaving, people are discouraged, and the pastor gets up one morning and says, why are the rest of you here? Man! Man! What makes the difference? This isn't a pastor. This is the Son of God telling you the terms of eternal life and death. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. You can fulfill all of your earthly obligations, and if because of that you lose Jesus, put Him in second place, you will have missed eternal life. You will have missed your purpose. That's why Jesus said in the Gospel of John, this is eternal life, that they would know Me, that they would know God, you, Father, that they would know you and the one that you have sent. Eternal life is knowing the Son and the Father who sent him. In other words, this is incredibly good news. If you've met Jesus, you've met the answer. You may not have momentarily the answers to all of your earthly troubles, but you are in a loving relationship with the one who made life itself. And this is a hard saying because it's a loving saying because there's all kinds of things that will call out to you that they are more important, including your mom and dad. It doesn't happen very often in America, at least in the United States, I mean. happens very often overseas. When we served outside of the country, the church baptized a young man who went home to find all of his belongings on the street in front of his home. I've talked to some of you who said the moment you were baptized, because that is is the public symbol that you are with Jesus, and for many families, that's the breaking point. They're willing to ignore the fact that you love Him, you trust Him, you're going to church to hear about Him, but baptism draws a line. And some of you have told me, the day you got baptized, someone you love said, you're dead to me. We basically already had your funeral in our minds and our emotions. But what do you think? Is Jesus worth all that? It's hard, isn't it? If you take it seriously. Why is he being so stark? Why is he being so diamond hard clear because he's going to jerusalem the son of god the creator of all things is on his way to jerusalem to die for the sins of mankind next to this nothing else matters so what would it mean for you to proclaim the kingdom of god i don't know where are you are you in an office are you in a family Are you in a circle of friends? What matters to those people more than anything else is knowing God and the one He sent. That Jesus says is eternal life. You can work beside them and be the best employee in the world your whole life and win all the prizes and help your company keep its mission and keep everyone in your family happy. But if they miss Jesus and the kingdom of God, one moment after their death, none of it will matter. That's the clarity that Jesus is bringing to his disciples. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. (laughs) Does that seem reasonable? Does it? Can I say goodbye? And this man evidently has read in the Scriptures that Elijah, the great prophet, permitted his successor to do just that can I go say goodbye? And Elijah says, what have I done to you? Go do what you want. And then he comes back and the handoff is made. This man feels like he's in good territory. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You following along with me, church? This is why a Christian university professor said to me a few years ago, for the first time in his life, he was reading the gospel slowly, and he wasn't really sure if he was comfortable with Jesus. He got through it. He came to love him more. But that meant he was reading him seriously for the first time in his life. He's not cherry-picking verses that he can live with. What, is it when we, what does it mean when we call Jesus Lord? Think about that. Because that was the claim that got a lot of Christians in the ancient world killed. When we call him Lord, what are we saying? This is the part where you talk back. Pardon? He's above everything. He's in charge of everything, including me. And if there is anyone I love with all my heart, if there is anyone on earth, even a person that I would die for, that would keep me from him, I will grip my teeth and cry my tears, but I will trust him. Why? Because he's going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world and to take his life back with the very authority of God. This isn't a college major that you can switch, and your family's not pleased because they wanted a doctor, but they can live with the marketing guy. It's okay. This isn't a career change, this isn't a choice of friendship, this isn't a move across the country, this is eternal life. This is the Word of God living, speaking in front of them, the one who made everything in the world, saw itself, saw it plunged into sin, and went after it to be tempted with those same sins and to die in the place of His humanity, saying, if you miss out on me, you have lost life itself. That's why it matters so much. That's what it means to be a wholehearted disciple. And the reason this story is at the end in God's masterful inspiration of His Word, using Luke as a consummate storyteller to tell you of the things that Jesus said and did and put them in the order to make maximum impact, what Luke wants you to see here is the fourth decept- the fourth thing that you can do to be a defective disciple is this, you can choose not to go all in and be a casual fan of Jesus instead of His wholehearted follower. Whatever you sacrifice for Jesus, it'll be worth it. I tell you that on the authority of God's Word and the character of Christ Himself. You may not have to sacrifice everything for Him. If you're a Christian, You stand in a fine tradition of 2,000 years of people all all over the world, men and women from every nation, who were sometimes put at a test between lions and choosing Christ. Between a fiery pit, between publicly being burned at the stake and choosing Christ. And those days, thankfully, will very likely never come for any of us. But Jesus is worth it. The gospel is worth it because none of those who have suffered, been mistreated, been pushed out of their families, been sent down, the, pa- been, been pushed out of promotions, sacrificed money, left families, done whatever it takes in their place, in their calling, whether it's your, the corner of your neighborhood or the exceeding hard work that amazing volunteers have done to produce our Vacation Bible School… I can't tell you how many thousands of hours have been poured into this. There's a few people who have worked probably 80 or 90 hours in the last two weeks purely as volunteers. Jesus is thrilled. He's delighted. Why? Not because we're going to have a cool program, but because Jesus, the eternal life, the Word of God is going to be presented to children. And some of those children will trust Jesus and be wholehearted followers and look back in their old age and know that because of the love of a stranger who they never even met, they now know and have life forever. Will it be worth it? Yes. So what this is about is to invite you into the very mission of Christ, which our church takes not as a cool slogan, but as what Jesus wants us to do, to become and to make wholehearted followers of Jesus, not defective. Is it a struggle? Is it a process? Absolutely. I've made every single one of these mistakes, probably all four this week. What gives me hope? A Savior who loves me, who's made it His worth, not mine, that will save me who has given me purpose and eternal life, and the great invitation is to come follow Him and join Him in the work that He is doing to save people from their sin. With a Savior like that, we dare not hold back. We want to go all in. Let's pray. Hey, Crosspoint, hard, clear word this morning, I trust. Maybe you've been on the fringes and you've been checking Jesus out. Can I invite you in His name to cross the line, to set aside your fear and your prejudice and trust Him? And call out to Jesus and say, You died for my sin, Lord. I get that now. Please save me. I'm turning away from my sin. Make me your disciple. Make me follow you. Give me a heart that is new and fresh. Save me from my sin and teach me to follow you day by day. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to understand it all. You have to hear His call, stand up, and get moving after Him. That's what these disciples did. And from these wrong-headed, often mistaken, judgmental disciples, Jesus is going to make the finest Christians who ever lived. He can do the same for you. You'll not be an apostle, but you can be a Christian. You can be a disciple, a genuine follower of the Savior of the world. If you do that this morning, just call out to Him and ask Him to save you. And I would ask just so that we can rejoice with you and help you take those first steps. If you do that this morning, take the card in your bulletin and let us know. We want to send you a Bible if you need one. We want to send you a simple book to teach you the first steps of discipleship, of following Christ. It's not a program, it's a life. And it's a life lived with Him and lived with other disciples on the road following Him. And maybe you're a disciple and you know it. Are you half-hearted? Yeah, me too. Too often. But I don't want to make it all about me. I don't want to think I'm the only one. I don't want to put him in second place. I don't want to give him part of me. I'll waste it. I want to give him all of me. Let's pray and make that commitment to him this morning. Lord Jesus, receive this final that we have together in this public service. Receive our offerings, receive our confession, receive our plea, Lord, to change us from the inside out so that we would be wholehearted. Thank you, Lord, for those this morning who may be coming and trusting you for the first time. I don't know. I pray that you would call them by your good grace and that if anyone here does not know you, that they would leave here with the assurance that they have surrendered their sin and welcomed you as Savior. Receive this offering as well, Lord. It is given from homes that are some very well-to-do, others desperately poor and barely hanging on. You love, Lord, not the gift. You love the giver, and you love the heart behind it. So we give this to you in the prayer that you would find us generous and faithful. And whatever you've given, that we understand that we've been blessed to be a blessing. So receive this in Jesus' name, amen.